Hello, everyone. Welcome to the TeamCast. I am Dr. Preston Klein, Director of Research and Education at the Mission Critical Team Institute. The TeamCast is a show where my colleagues, Goldman Rees, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffitt, and myself, along with our guests, discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. Mission Critical Teams are teams of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and educated and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you are on a mission critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the TeamCast. Welcome to the TeamCast. I am Dr. Preston Klein, and today I am joined by Dr. Colonel Astronaut Drew Morgan, who will help me guide a conversation with Mr. Dwayne Ross, who has been a key member of the Astronaut Selection Program at NASA since 1978. Drew and Dwayne, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Preston. No problem. Before we we do introductions, and we will in a moment, I want to take a minute and give the audience some background on the the research that I've been doing for the past 16 years on the selection and assessment of mission-critical teams around the world. So as many of you know, since about 2007, I've been observing selection. I'm one of the few humans to observe selection for all the special mission units, military special units, mission units in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States, and as well as urban and wildland firefighting, tactical law enforcement, emergency medicine, et cetera. And over that time, what I found were some eerie similarities. I kept coming across some very similar exercises, similar language, similar phrases. Many of you have probably heard about the whole man approach. And I would hear that from different places around the world. And I became fascinated. Well, where did all this come from? Because there were so many similarities that had to have an origin. And so I started doing research in partnership with many of the teams. And it turns out that the assessment selection programs of most teams, and this is not true for NASA, but most teams can be traced back to Germany in 1927. And that story of how it got from there to the modern teams we have now is worth just reviewing quickly as it informs how we think about finding that right person to work on these teams, to go out into the world, to navigate uncertain emergent environments where where critical decisions need to be made. So the background here is after their loss in World War I, the Germans signed the Treaty of Versailles. And part of that treaty is limited their officers to 4,000 people. They can go no bigger than that. But by the late 1920s, Germany was rearming and needed to find a way to rapidly rebuild their military. But they had two problems. The German military high command was facing pressure from the German or Prussian aristocracy, which had always chosen their sons to be officers, and the rising Nationalist Socialist Party, the Nazis, on the other side that wanted all the officers to be graduates of Hitler Youth. Right. The German high command wanted to maintain their independence. So what they decided to do was outsource the problem to a group of psychologists. This was made possible because the first institute for experimental psychology was created in Leipzig, Germany in 1879. So by the 1920s, you had a surplus psychologist looking for work. One of the first psychologists they hired was a guy named Dr. Max Simonet. It was Max Simonet who created the term the whole man approach, and that was to differentiate from the historical sort of like, who was your dad and what kind of car did he drive? And his team also was the one who developed the leaderless group test, which most teams, most listeners will be familiar with, which is we're going to give you a group of guys a problem, you men and women a problem, and figure it out. We're not going to appoint a leader, and we're just going to watch you do it. That's where it comes from. And many of these tests and frames are still used by teams all over the world. It was based on research called characterology, and that research was basically like, let's look in the past for great leaders, figure out what their character traits are, and then assess people for those traits. By 1936, however, the Nazis had gained full control of the German military, and Max Simonet had now adapted the theory of characterology and evolved into its next iteration, which is trait theory. Trait theory, that's where it comes from, that many of the people listening will have taken tests like the NEO based on trait theory. That's where it comes from. And 
The problem was, is that this original research by Nazis was the most cutting edge. It was also in service to proving that traits of a particular race, good or bad, were hereditary. So the origin of this stuff isn't actually really nice. And we actually know how that turned out. And this story might have ended in 1945 when the Germans were defeated, which would seem to suggest that their selection program wasn't that great, except for the one of the most ironic miscommunications in the history of science. And that was this. In 1927, when the German high command decided to outsource this problem to the German psychologists, they failed to appreciate that German psychologists are academics who are going to want to get tenure and become famous. And the only way to do that is to publish their research. And so they literally spent the war publishing all of their research in international journals so everybody could read it. So 1938 arrives. Britain, Britain needs to go from having a military of about 400,000 people to almost 5 million within about six years. To do that means that they have to take a bunch of lower class folks and make them officers. Britain doesn't want to do that because they have a history of upper class sons of aristocracy being in the military officer class. And so they promptly decide that what they're going to do is outsource the problem to psychologists. So what do those psychologists do? They take all the journal articles from the Germans and they recreate the whole process in, in Britain and they call it the War Officer Selection Board. Then a few years later in 1942, and this is where it all starts to come together, the same year that the German selection program is being discontinued, not ever being validated because the Nazis didn't like that it was discriminating against Hitler youth, President Roosevelt decides that they need spies. The United States decides that we need spies and, and we're going to create the Office for Strategic Service. So he calls up a drinking buddy, Wild Bill Donovan, and says, hey, go get me some spies. So Wild Bill Donovan does what we would all do in that situation, and he called up his buddies. In this case, his fraternity brothers at Columbia and said, hey, you guys want to be spies? And they all said, after they chugged a beer, they said, yes, we do. So he handed them all suitcases full of money and sent them off to Europe. Unfortunately, and this may come as a huge surprise for some of you listening, it turns out that what makes you great as a fraternity brother at Columbia, and I'm quoting here from the After Action Review after this debacle, does not prepare you for dissembling under the threat of torture by the Gestapo or properly accounting for large sums of money with little supervision. So after President Roosevelt ransomed back all the fraternity brothers, right, that were the sons and daughters of the American aristocracy, he said, all right, enough of this. Let's find a Harvard psychologist and let's find a, a decent program. And they did exactly what you think they did. They fly to Europe. They fly to Britain. They watch the War Officer Selection Program, they read all the German research, and they create the OSS selection process. And all of this would have ended at the end of the war, except that President Truman disbands the OSS. And a few years later, all of these out-of-work psychologists publish a book called The Assessment of Men in 1948. And this book is the book that was used by all special operations and by the 1950s post-war corporations like IBM, Bell Lab, Bell Telephone, GM, to select future leaders. And so that language, which originated with the Germans, which then was the British, then with the U.S., all of this was passed down through time, but at no point did anyone ever vet to see if this actually worked. And so it was just inherited with everybody being like, yeah, that's that's right. Now, what makes this interesting is that even though that's where many of the people who are listening will originate where their careers will find themselves, we're now going to talk about a selection process that happened independently of that. And mainly the reason for that is that in 1959, after the president had decided that astronauts would only be test pilots, they had to create a system for an entirely new technology. And so before we go down that path, what we're going to do today is we're going to go back in time and sort of talk about some of the big transitions that have happened in NASA around selection. And for those of you who are listening, this is important because every mission critical team that's listening is right now going through existential changes, big changes, changes that NASA have seen throughout history. And it's very useful to know that humans being our only real strategic asset, that we need to be thinking ahead about how big organizations historically 
have dealt with some of these big changes. So with that, uh, I want to begin all my introductions. I'll start with you, Drew, and then Drew, I'll have you introduce Dwayne. But Dr. Colonel Astronaut Drew Morgan is an Army colonel who spent years with a special mission unit as the medical doctor, had been deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan, and Africa. He's been on this program before. He was selected in 2013 as one of eight members of NASA Astronaut Group 21. He launched into space on a Soyuz in 2019 and was on the ISS Expedition 60, 61, and 62 as a flight engineer. And he spent 272 days on the International Space Station. And at the time was the fourth longest single space flight for an American astronaut at that point in time. Drew, thanks very much for joining us and helping connect us with Dwayne. Yeah, my pleasure, Preston. I first want to just talk real quickly about my connection to you. I became connected to the Mission Critical Teams group probably five or six years ago, maybe even six or seven years ago. And when I attended one of the summits in New York City, and it was a profound experience. And Preston, you and I have connected a number of times over our interest in assessment and selection uh, specifically. And we've just enjoyed being part of that community because I do see a lot of crossover between all these communities. And I think what we'll uncover today that there are a lot of, even though there was some independent development of NASA's astronaut selection process, there is a lot of crossover between the communities and that there have been over the decades. And so we'll explore those a little bit. And I think we'll discover some of those things along the way. But it's my pleasure to introduce to the Mission Critical Teams community, Dwayne Ross, who is a legend in astronaut selection because he was a part of it for so many years. Going all the way back, the first class that he selected was in 1978, which was the eighth group of astronauts ever selected. So to put that in context, the first group, the Mercury 7, were selected in 1959. And then fast forward through the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs, which were our early space programs, transitioned to the space shuttle program in the early 1980s. Dwayne was part of selecting that first class in 1978, Group 8, and then selected every group all the way up to Group 21, which was my class in the class of 2013. So I was going through the selection process in 2012 and 2013, which was when I met Dwayne. So Dwayne and I have known each other now for a little over 10 years. And while he was running selection and part of that a byproduct of being part of that process is Dwayne knows every astronaut ever selected. I think, save for just a few, I, I, there are probably a few exceptions. And we all, by virtue of that, have become friends with Dwayne, and, and he's been an important part of our lives, and I consider him a friend. And Dwayne is going to talk a little bit about his story that brought him to NASA and then his involvement with the selection process. And I was just going to hit a couple of highlights here. I mean, he's an, an Oklahoma native, and he'll talk about what brought him then to Texas and his tie to NASA and the space program. He's an avid motorcycle rider, and he's a grandfather of nine grandchildren. Also interesting in tomorrow, which we're recording this right here at the beginning of the new year, tomorrow, three 3rd of January will be his 79th birthday. And he's also an avid runner. And I don't know if you know very many men in their 70s who still avidly run, but Dwayne and I had a tradition when he was still working here at NASA is we would find the first triple digit day of the NASA summer and we would meet up to go for a run here at Johnson Space Center. And just as a little bit of a gut check, we would just try to run, usually we'd do about a three, three and a half mile run in the 100 plus degree Houston heat and humidity. And I had a hard time keeping up with them and I still would. Dwayne, it's my pleasure to have you with us today. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your origin with NASA and how you got from Oklahoma to NASA's Johnson Space Center at the Center of Astronaut Selection. Okay, you bet. I grew up in the old patch in southern Oklahoma to start with, worked on my dad's gas station from the time I was about 10 until I graduated from college. When I graduated from college, my plan was to go to work for Tinker Air Force Base in, uh, in Oklahoma City. That's where my dad worked when I was born. I was born in Oklahoma City. And so to do that, you had to take a government test back then. So I went and took the test because they asked me to. And I guess I did okay on it. And I thought it was just a test to go to work at Tinker Air Force Base. But it was actually a test to go to work for the government in Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, and Louisiana. And as luck would have it, the Johnson, well, it was the Manned Spacecraft Center at the time. This is in 1967. 
got the list of people who had taken the test. And I guess I did okay because I was at my dad's gas station. The phone rings and it was the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston. I thought it was a joke. And uh, particularly because the lady who called me, his last name was Love. You know, and I thought, all right, somebody's pulling my chain here. But uh, she said, will you hold on and talk to Mr. Les Sullivan, which I did and talked to him for quite a while. And well, a long while, as a matter of fact, because he explained everything that was going on at the John at the Manned Spacecraft Center. And then he asked me if I would be interested in working in there. And I said, well, ab- absolutely, you know, because my dad was a space cadet. I heard all about the Manned Spacecraft Center and Chris Craft and all that stuff for years. I was interested in, you know, getting off of work and going and chasing girls. But he would we would go out on the side of a hill and watch the Yanko uh, Mylar balloon go floating, you know, by at night like a big star. So anyway, I got off the phone finally said, who was that? And I said, that was the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, Texas. He said, no, really, who was it? I said, no, really, it was. He said, what they want? He said, they wouldn't know if I wanted to come to work for NASA at the Manned Spacecraft Center. And he let out a hoot and went and jumped in his car and went uptown and told everybody I was going to work for NASA. Well, I don't need kind of signed up for an interview. <laughs> so it was a little bit premature, but as it turns out, I didn't come to work for at the Manned Spacecraft Center in 1967. At that point in time, I came to work the same year that the last class of uh, scientist astronauts did. That was class number six. And, of course, during that time, the Air Force Manned Orbiting Laboratory budget was canceled for that, and they had already selected astronauts. So we took seven astronauts in 1969 out of the the Manned Orbiting Lab program. And then we rocked her along doing nothing for a long time. And I was the personnel guy for the Flight Crew Operations Directorate. And it came time to to worry about selection. And they just needed a flunky to start putting all the pieces of it together. And I just happened to be there. I was the flunky uh, in the target right then. Point out that NASA is a government agency. We had no authority to do anything on our own. Everything you do has to be approved by everybody. And so we started writing all the rules on on what we were going to do. They knew this was going to be new and different. And so we developed something called an astronaut candidate training program, which was kind of a special appointing authority where we'd appoint people for a two-year period. And it was a training and evaluation period. And at the end of that period, if they were successful in the training, they would get uh, transitioned to the astronaut corps. And if they weren't, then we would find them a different job or let them go back to where they were or whatever. So we actually had a two-year period to evaluate people after they were selected, which is one of the best ideas anybody ever had, because then by the time you actually put somebody in the active astronaut car, you had been able to observe them for a long time and a long, uh, in a lot of different situations. So that's where we started in 1978. We got all that approved by Office of Personnel Management. Somebody said they need to put that whole selection process in the Federal Register which I cringed at initially, but then it occurred to me we might could put a couple of things in there that would help us along the way, which we did. And so it all got approved and we started up with the selection process. So I, that started in about 1975 for me. So you mentioned that you were working for the Flight Crew Operations Director then, which at that time and, and now, and, and it's analogous um, higher headquarters, uh, if you would, ran the astronaut office, the astronaut corps. And you were in some ways, because you had not been a, had a selection for a number of years and you were starting over to some degree, how did you draw on the experiences of the selection of the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo astronauts and bring that forward to the selection of the first astronauts intended for the space shuttle program? Yeah. It was really difficult because most of the people who were involved in those early selections were gone. Uh, Very few of them are still around. And I was telling Drew that when we started into the 78 selection, all of the records from those early selections uh, had been sent to the Federal Records Center in St. Louis. And so we went through the process of getting those back down to the Manned Spacecraft Center so we could review that and see if we could learn anything from them. Whoever sent them to the Federal Records Center had just thrown file drawers into boxes. So when we got them back, there were 35 boxes of no rhyme or reason. They weren't by file by date. They weren't filed alphabetically. They weren't filed in any way at all that we could make any sense out of. And at the time, we didn't have time to try to sort them out and figure out anything. So they just went into box. They just went back into the boxes and uh, 
And then when we closed up the office after the 78 selection, they were sent back up to one of our little buildings on the back end of the, of the center here for storage. That was in the end of 78. In the summer of 79, there was a rain event in the area that put the little town of Alvin, Texas, in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most rainfall in a 24-hour period. And we got a lot of that, too. And it was a year or so before anybody went back to look at those records and try to get them back out to look at them. And the, the building leaked. So what they had was a gigantic pile of uh, mold and mildew and paper mache. And so they pronounced them dead and destroyed them. So records from all those early selections basically don't exist. I had a couple of files from the scientist astronaut program selection, but that was about it. We, and we put together a thing for a, uh, a book called the Encyclopedia of Space that uh, Hans Mark had wanted to do. He was a former deputy administrator of NASA. And so we wrote a little bit of a, a chapter on the, on the selection process, and we incorporated everything in that chapter that we knew about the early selections. We didn't know what year they were, who was selected, and who was on the selection board for them. That's really about all there was for those early selections. So, Dwayne, the role of psychologists has been, I believe, a consistent presence in our selection process going back to those early days. Were there any psychologists from those early selection processes that carried over to when you were running selection, or was there not that continuity? There was one There was one fellow who had been here back during that time frame, I think, but I, but, but I, wouldn't, but I wouldn't swear to that. We, we have a group called the Behavioral Sciences Organization now, and it has evolved from those days when we started the, the selection on the shuttle, as far as I know, and they are pretty heavily involved in it. I'll just say that when we do a selection, we bring the applicants down in groups of about 20 for a, for a week-long session, and most of that session is taken up with medical evaluation. Part of the medical evaluation is a, a psychological evaluation by our behavioral sciences people. I'm not sure early on what they were looking for, but along the way, what they are looking for is select in factors and not necessarily select out factors. By the time people get to the point where we can uh, be of interest in them, they uh, probably are pretty squared away. You know, we have had a couple of people who are maybe on the outer edge of, uh, of being okay, but uh, most of them are pretty squared away. So what they're looking for more than select out is to is select in. And the select in characteristics are based on what they learn from all the people who go fly in space and, you know, and, and, and do well. If there was an area, Preston, I think that are areas of crossover between the selection processes that you described the heritage of and uh, NASA astronaut selection. I likely selection psychology was one of those areas. The community I have found of operational psychologists is a pretty small, tight shot group, and there's a lot of crossover between individuals that had experience in selecting an assessment and selection, special forces assessment selection, and other special operations communities that also have either brought that to NASA or have had a foot in both camps at different times. And so a lot of those same principles of what exactly they're looking for, a lot of times you're looking for the same types of things, or at least have those skills of observation about human behaviors and understand that there is a little bit different environment that the special operator is going to operate in and an astronaut on a long duration space flight is going to operate in. But nevertheless, those skills of observation are finely tuned for operational environments. And that is one area that I think is a clear connection between those worlds. Yeah. I think for the listeners, what I'd like to do now is take us back to the beginning, only because, Drew, I think what you're pointing at is there is the official systematic way to select people by using experts, but there's also, you're doing it within the context of an existing culture. And the NASA culture, especially the astronaut culture, has changed a couple of, of serious ways over the years. And you guys were referencing early days, but in, in 1959, that original what what President Eisenhower sort of said in 1958 is the only people that can be astronauts are test pilots. But by 1964, we are now selecting for scientist astronauts, which you referenced earlier. And I know that you're arriving in 1967, Dwayne, and I know you're arriving at a point where in the building you still have, as you as you mentioned, you still have some of those original test pilots, but you also have the scientist astronauts. What was it like? 
culturally, when those when they mingled, was it easy? Was there conflict? Was it pretty straightforward? I, I wouldn't say there's a lot of conflict. They were different, obviously. But what we did early on with the scientists, astronauts, as you probably uh, have read, is uh, we sent all those folks to pilot training. And so they became qualified in flying the T-38. Some of them loved it. Some of them did not love it at all, you know, but but they were required to go and they were sent off for a year to the various bases, uh, you know, Shepard Air Force Base up in Wichita, Falls, Texas, and places like that for uh, jet, for basic flight training and then jet upgrade training. And so they had a they had that common ground that they could speak to each other on because they were all flyers. Some of the scientists, astronauts, didn't stay a, a real long time okay. because in that selection process, the people who selected scientists, they had the National Academy of Sciences help in the selection process. And what they were selecting were scientists. Well, the world's best scientists might be a lousy astronaut, you know. And so what we needed were astronauts. We needed operational people to go fly and operational people who go fly and do whatever science was on that mission. And it probably wasn't going to be their science ever. Yep. You know, so they had to pretty much give up their science and do somebody else's science. And, and some of them didn't want to do that. And that that's OK. You know, it's better to learn early on than to, to, to wait to late in the game when they're they're actually on board ship and supposed to be doing something. The ones that did stay, though, did, did a great job. We had some really, really great scientists and great pilots uh, who came out of those groups. So if I, if I could, when you think back to those groups that did well, those scientists, astronauts that did well, could you think about two or three things like attributes or competencies that, that sort of seemed to make them successful? Some of that may have been a little bit of diversity of interest. You know, they did other things besides just do their science. Yeah. Uh, but you got guys like, uh, I don't know, Joe Allen, for instance. Yeah. Uh, Joe Allen. When he went to uh, flight training, he was number one in his class at flight training, you know, as a, as a as scientist astronauts. So they just adapted very well to the situation at hand and, and did a good job. Uh, Doc Thornton, Bill Thornton was a, uh, you know, he was a, he was a doctor, but he also had some, some military experience also. So they, they had a variety of different backgrounds and just like the people we pick now, you know, yep. some of them adapt quicker than others. So just to say back some of the words you just used, adaptability, diversity of interest, dependability, all those things seem to be things that we see on most teams as being important. And as the problem sets become more complex, things like adaptability and diversity of thought become even more important so that they can flex to whatever shows up. Exactly. It's just like the flying. You say, okay, my job right now is to go learn to fly. So I'm going to do that as the best of my ability and as well as I can and be the best pilot I can be even though I'm a scientist. Yeah. So it's 1967. You've just gone from Oklahoma. You're now at Johnson Space Center. Two years passed. It's 1969. Apollo 11 is about to happen. You're sitting in your office. Walk me through what happens next. When I first came to work down here, I worked in the flight operations directorate for uh, about the first four years before I moved over to human resources and started working in astronaut selection. But back at that point, back Apollo 11, the, uh, the the director of flight operations was Chris Kraft. And the uh, lead flight director for the uh, mission was Gene Kranz. But those guys decided that all the employees should have an opportunity to you know, participate in this at some level. The old Mission Control Center was identical on the second and third floors. And what they would do is they would control from one floor, and, it, and while that would the mission was going on, they could be reconfiguring the other floor for the next mission coming up, start training people for that. So they were controlling from the third floor. They uh, brought up all the displays on the second floor, the big out of four TV screens and the communications loops and all that kind of stuff, the clocks, whatever. So people could come in there and hear what was going on. And, and, and they expected a big crowd and there was a big crowd that came in. So they just needed a flunky, you know, to go in there and manage the room. And they asked if I wanted to do that because it was you had to, I had to do my job during the day, then go over there and spend the night, you know, running that room. I was I was absolutely, you know, I'd done anything to get into the control center. So I had a badge that authorized me to go in the mission operations control room. So about 10 minutes before we were scheduled to land on the moon, I just went out the door and went in and slipped in the, in the back door to the third floor 
Mission Operations Control Room. So I was standing there. I could look down the aisle there and see uh, Chris Kraft and Gene Kranz and, you know, hear what was going on. So I stayed there until we landed on the moon. Charlie Duke was the cap, capsule communicator, the Capcom. And at the end of that, he said, you, you got guys turning blue down here. And he was right, because I couldn't remember how long it had been since I'd breathed. You know, you, there was not a sound in that room. While they, you could hear the beeps and the signals from uh, from uh, Neil Armstrong, but that was that was it. And it, it, was, it was uproarious when they said, Houston, Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. Wow, that was incredible. Pretty incredible for us to hear the firsthand account of you being in the control room on that day. One of the greatest triumphs of uh, American history. Really incredible to hear you tell that. Thanks. And the other part of that is I wasn't supposed to be there. (laughs) Fantastic. So now I kind of want to bring us to 1978. And so how do you move into the role of astronaut selection? How uh, How do you get that job? Well, I, I had become the personnel guy for the flight crew operations directorate. Uh, our, our philosophy at the center was we would assign one person as a personnel guy to an organization. So they didn't have to call 10 different people, depending on what kind of a personnel problem they had. They had one person they had to go to, and that was for flight crew. It was me. And nobody else wanted that job because it was perceived to be a difficult job because you had some pretty strong personalities you were dealing with. And they wanted to hear what they wanted to hear, (laughs) which wasn't always what I had to say. But anyway, (laughs) that was okay. I got along with them just really, really well. And so uh, when it came time to have a flunky start doing a selection process, I knew the people. I pretty much had kind of figured out the job. And so I was just there. That's all it was. I was standing right there when it came time to start working on this. Got it. So we've already talked about the, the the initial two transitions. You've got the start of the astronaut crew, where we're going to do test pilots. A few years later, we now select scientist astronauts because we realize we're going to be doing more astronaut, more science in space. We still need people to have competencies. But by 1978, two major transitions are happening. The first is we're moving from rockets to the space shuttle. And the second thing is we've decided to include women, African-Americans and Asians, people of Asian descent, into the astronaut corps. So you're in the hot seat. It's your first year in the job. You're seeing two major cultural changes happening to something that is a national legacy. Everyone has in the country has a vote on what an astronaut is, right? And, and you're sitting in the hot seat. Walk us through how that process went. It was interesting. We were still going to select astronauts. I mean, pilot astronauts. And it was, we said in our announcement for the job that that test pilot experience is desirable. We didn't say you had to be a test pilot school graduate, which is what some of the early selections did. And, you know, we got a whole lot of applicants from the guys in, who had who were test pilots. One of the things we went through uh, in every selection, starting with 78, was we included the military services. They would have their own internal selection programs and then nominate folks down to us for consideration with our program. And uh, our our handshake agreement with them was that we did not consider any military member unless they were nominated by their parent service. That way, if we decided to select them, we knew the service would send them down here. So we still had kind of that same similar mind frame for the, for the pilots. But for the mission specialist, on each mission, there might be two pilots and three to you know, four or five mission specialists. So it was clear we needed more people than that. And it was also clear that maybe the scientists, the PhD science astronauts types were not the best people to pick, that we needed probably folks. A master's degree was nice. It wasn't required. We never required anything but a bachelor's degree in engineering, math, or science while I was doing doing this. But what we looked for primarily was the operational experience you know has this person done something that would translate to what we're going to ask astronauts to do uh, there's a lot of important jobs that people do but they're not things that we do in space and these things we have to worry about uh, so the uh, operational experience became probably the key thing we look for in the paper review for the selection process uh, most people had a master's degree and, and a lot of time PhD degree. And that was good. That met all the basic requirements. But our key thing was the operational experience. 
and operational hands-on, you know, that kind of stuff that, that would indicate that they can go do all these kind of little jobs we're going to have them do and do them well. And Dwayne, unlike the previous selection groups uh, before Group 8 in 1978, there had been purely selected pilots or test pilots, and then one group selected purely scientists, the two uh, selections of purely scientists. And then in 78, now we're selecting them all. This is the first time it had occurred as one yeah. big cohort, correct? Exactly. That's exactly right. And, and early on with the 78 selection, we made a mistake when we did, went through the, uh, the uh, interview process. We said, okay, well, this, this first week we're going to have uh, 20 pilots come down. Second week we'll have 20 medical doctors. Next week we'll have 20 engineers. That was really dumb. You talk about boring to hear 20 pilots sit around and tell their flying stories, you know, for a week in a row. <laughs> so uh, very quickly we started just mixing them up, you know. We're just going to bring 20 people down. Who are we going to bring down? Well, we got these people identified. Let's get them. So they would be all walks of life. And not only did that work better for us, it worked so much better for them. Because when they would get down here, they would have a real appreciation from people who did stuff different than what they did. The pilots said, geez, I don't know how I'm going to select those guys that just yeah, we're talking to. They're, they're so smart. You know, they know everything. You know, and I'm just a dumb pilot. Are the, and the, the scientists and the engineers would say, man, those pilots are awesome. They fly this, they fly that. I'm not going to have a chance to get in. So it kind of humbled a whole bunch of them, which, which was great. It was really interesting. And what the other thing I just, uh, just thought of was I figured when these folks would come down, they would be uh, a lot of competition. You know, a lot of looking askance at each other and, and, uh, and wondering what to do. But it was totally different than that. They would show up as a group of 20, and they were best buddies from the, from the get-go, and they stayed best buddies for years. Some of those early interview groups still get together and have reunions, things like that. So it was the camaraderie was obvious then. And, and was that part of what you were thinking was, I want to mix these candidates to start seeing who, who will build cohesion, who will build community, and who will stand alone? That was part of it, but the first part of it was this is boring to do it up the other way. Let's let's mix it up a little bit. And if we, once you mix it up, it was clear there was a lot of other advantages to that also, just what you said. So, sorry, Drew? I was going to say, yeah, and that, that is now an enduring feature of the selection process now, right up yeah. through my selection in 2013 for the 21st group, and then we've selected two classes since then. And we still bring them down in groups where they're a diverse mix of people in every sense of the word, because it allows you to kind of build that uh, uh, sense of team, the way your class would be selected, which it's going to be a diverse group of people. And seeing those interactions is a critical part of our observation of seeing how they form those bonds and what they draw from that experience and how they interact and observing how they work together. It's a, it's, it's a brilliant thing that as you know Dwayne says they kind of stumbled upon maybe a little bit accidentally or for different reasons but it had a different you know the byproduct has been enduring it's been interesting that you know most teams i work with are still selecting individuals as individuals even though they'll work on teams but if you look at say the Wharton school for example and the dean of admissions there is Blair Mannix and work with Cade professor Cade Massey on looking at group interviews for that very reason because they realize that the strength of that organization, that place, is the community of which you join, not the individuals who make up that community. And so they they take it very seriously of building that from the very, very beginning. The, Dwayne, the, the next question I have for you is, you know, in looking at the history of NASA, before we even move too far, what we have to recognize is Apollo 13 happened. There was some incidents that happened. As these things would happen, as challenges, as line-of-duty deaths would happen, would that influence the way you selected astronauts? Not necessarily those kinds of things. Uh, obviously, when we got ready to go into the space station era, it became uh, the long-duration issues were a little bit more of, a, uh, of an issue, obviously, and that was more for the behavioral sciences folks and and. and and getting their evaluation of the people than it was for ours. Obviously, that was important to us when we interviewed them and asked what kind of things they'd done. You know, did you had what kind of idea? If you're a pilot, do you like single seat or you know you like the two seat? You like the crew aspect of it or whatever. And so you you you, you broach all those questions. But for uh, the the big thing was the uh, long duration versus the uh, you know up and back kinds of kinds of missions. 
And we had uh, our, our behavioral sciences folks are, are awesome. Yeah. They don't think they know have all the answers, just like we don't think we have all the answers. Yeah. And when they'd come over and talk to me after a, an interview week had gone by or at the end of the whole interview session, they would call it the musing of the shrinks. They wouldn't say, here's who you need to take, you yeah. know. But it was interesting because our lists were always so similar. The yeah. folks that we had picked out as our top contenders were the same folks they had as their first recommendations. Well, Dwayne's career inflection had been uh, a couple of those those transitional inflection points in astronaut selection. The first one we've alluded to in 1978 when we transitioned from those early programs to the space shuttle and selecting more diverse groups and bringing them into the shuttle program, which then flew for 30 years beyond that. But Dwayne was also part of, as he alluded to, that transition to long duration spaceflight. Then as the space shuttle sundown and the International Space Station was fully developed and up and running around 2010 or so, we selected a class in 2009 that um, Dwayne knew and we all anticipated that would never fly on the space shuttle and they would transition to long duration spaceflight. And that's where our behavioral health scientists and experts started to look at this and but also the selection board just in general that we know that we're selecting people that aren't going to fly in the space shuttle and the missions that they fly are only going to be six months or greater in length compared to the more sortie style flights of the space shuttle for 30 years which were on the long end maybe 14 days so the the mindset shift there would around the time that we selected the class of 2009, group 20. And so, Dwayne, are there things about the process that changed at that point, just beyond just what the behavioral health professionals were doing in this this time period, transitioning that mindset to select long-duration crew members? Probably not anything I would point out as being a major change. Again, we were looking for the kind of the same kinds of people and the people that we selected for a shuttle, you know, you could you could kind of see how they reacted on a two week mission and those kinds of things. And it seemed that we were selecting the right kinds of people all along the way. We, we would tweak the selection process a little bit, maybe from year to year. But our basic going in position back in 1978 was that the first thing we got to look at is the operational experience. Then we got to get these folks down for an interview. And then somebody asked me one time, said, what's a key thing you look for? I said, I look for nice people, you know, because you can you can teach people a lot of things, but you can't teach them to be nice. They can fake you out for a week or two, but, you know, long duration, it's not going to happen. And so we also have our two-year training and evaluation period where you can really sort those kinds of things out and, and see if you made the right decisions or not. Now that you've been doing this for a few decades and you look back at all the astronauts that you've met over the years, right? And in any population, you're going to have some rock stars and you're going to have some people that you kind of shake your head a little bit at. And does that ever influence when you're looking at a new generation of astronauts? Do you ever go back and go, oh, this person is a little bit like that person, or I don't know if this is going to work out because I've seen this before? Well, you know, the reason they are maybe not rock stars on isn't always the same reason. Right. <laughs> so you don't you, you don't want to put a whole lot of emphasis on something, you know, on just a, a, an isolated situation. So I, I would say uh, of the people who maybe didn't work out, there's not really a, a common okay a common reason why they didn't work out. It may have been. Uh, a realization that maybe this wasn't the kind of job they wanted to do, like it happened with our science astronaut programs. It may have been because some of the, uh, I remember in one case, the person was an outstanding engineer and can do a lot of things as an engineer. But when you came to putting it all together for a space mission, you got to do EVA, you got to do, uh, you got to work with the experiments on board, you got to fix a potty, you know, you got to do robotics. In any one of those, they might have been outstanding, but putting them all together just was uh, just an overload, and they didn't they didn't function well in that kind of an environment. It's kind of hard to figure out until you get them down here and kind of put them in that kind of an environment to see. Yeah, that's a key distinction between the sort of missions in the spatial era is that you could, you could be just somebody who does robotics, and you could be someone who did uh, work with the payloads and did experiments. You somebody who did spacewalks. But now in long duration space flight, we needed people that did all those things and speak Russian, la- the Russian and, language, and who have aptitude Russian. to learn language. Yeah. So now we're looking at we need people that would be a little more jacks of all trade, not necessarily a master of just a single. 
So I guess my question is, you hear this from groups that are older, and I'll pick on, say, the Green Berets. You'll get some people that will say, hey, look, we were selecting great guys in 1950, and the same things that made us select those guys should be the same things we're using today to select Green Berets. There's a different argument that says, well, warfare has changed. The world has changed. And we probably need some of that, but some of it probably needs to change. And so we've talked about this, these transitions of going from test pilots to scientist astronauts to international space station crewed to long duration, right? And it, as those transitions have happened, have you seen any, not big changes, but but significant changes? And by saying, look, we, we actually need a little bit of a different kind of person based on this new mission. Or has it been, nope, we need nice people who are adaptable, reliable, and they'll figure out the rest. Again, I can't think of a uh, a specific case that I would say, yeah, here's a big change we had to make. We had to look for this and not that. We just kind of still look for the same kind of folks. Okay. And then once they get here, then we have that opportunity for two years just to put them through all those situations that, that they might have to go through and then to see if they're going to see if we made the right decision or not. That was a total reason we came up with that, because this is a completely different environment. Than flying in, the, you know, in Apollo and working those things with all the, with a whole lot more systems and a whole lot more things you have to know, and now being able to speak different languages, but the, the basic person was c- kind of the same, and their capabilities was what was different, you know. Yeah. And the net we cast uh, in those different eras was a little bit different too. I mean, that a number of candidates that the that NASA was looking at at the time that we selected the Mercury and Gemini astronauts, the pools were uh, primarily the test pilots or exclusively test pilots, and those numbered in the hundreds. Now, you know, our selection processes we're looking at. You know, our most recent ones, 18, 12 to 18,000 applicants now we're cast a much broader net. We're getting a much more diverse applicant and. Uh, it makes for a more diverse astronaut corps and you know a better astronaut corps. Okay. Dwayne, when you, when you first started this program, right, you, you know, all the paper had been lost. You were recreating a program in 1978. And part of what you had to do is build a selection board. It wasn't just you. There was a group of people, with different specialties and different ways of thinking. And that, that board's probably changed over the years. And so when you're putting together a board to select people, what kinds of things are you thinking about in regards to the board itself? Not so much the candidates, but who will be deciding on which candidates are selected. It's interesting. The only role I have in putting the board together, I, I wind up being a member of it just as kind of the executive officer, you know, the recording, that kind of stuff. The uh, chief of the astronaut office actually selects the first members of the board. I put together a list of folks I think would be good and send it over to the chief, and, and they look at it and go talk to the director of flight crew operations, and then the center director actually appoints Points the board, and what we want the board to be is is diverse and cover all the specialty areas that we might have to look at in somebody's background to see, uh, you know, if they're blowing smoke or they really have something good to, good to offer. And so we have pilots, and we have engineers and scientists and doctors. And at one point, we in two thousand four, we the NASA administrator said to select some educators, and so we did. You know, we selected the three educators for that class, and so we. They had a whole process to decide to decide which of the educator applicants that the, would actually come to the selection board. There was a pre-review by the headquarters education office. So we we assign people who will know whatever what whatever discipline we run into that somebody's in. Somebody can say, yeah, that's good or that's not good. Typically, it's not that hard of a, a decision to make. I mean, when you had a guy, he was a he was a physicist, very specialized physicist, and probably not something that anybody but him knew about. <laughs> but we had people who could understand science and know if that we if if, if the if the science was good and the guy was going to be somebody who could work in something besides that. As a person who has to manage that diverse group of people, which you didn't choose, I'm sure that there were moments where people in any board where people have disagreements about, I think this person would be great. I don't think this person would be great. And given that you didn't select these board members, how was it to manage that group? Do you have any advice for anyone that might be doing that work? i tell you what we are going in position was. We don't all have to agree because we're not going to agree on, on the uh, number one, number two, number three. What we will agree on is if there's anybody we select that, that we interview that you have a real problem with, I see. we're not going to take them. You know, if somebody has a real problem for a real reason, we're not going to take that person. Okay. 
what we wind up doing typically after interview is by by discipline again because this is a government job we have to have selection list and registers and all kind of uh, things to to meet the uh, the government procedures and requirements but we just do a force ranking you know okay who's our best pilot we'll go around there and we'll have we'll have a consensus we won't have a consensus we'll have a kind of a, a vote on who the best pilot is and at the end we kind of do that we go say okay give me your Give me your vote on by discipline group on each of these folks, and I'll integrate those, and we'll come back and look at the integrated list and see if there's any issues with that that we need to worry about. And that's kind of the, the way we did it. Typically, we don't select from a particular discipline. Back with a shuttle, we knew how many pilots we needed, and so we'd select so many pilots. But in the mission specialist, it was just pretty much who do we think are the best players except we had had an emphasis one year in uh, material science. So we had, they had, you know, they put the glove box on station and did, did a lot of, we had a lot of experience, experiments in material science. And so we made sure it included a couple of material scientists in the, in the selection group. We, we always made sure we had enough uh, medical doctors to look at all the medical requirements and those kinds of things. And so every now and then you'll emphasize a particular discipline, but usually you don't, you just take the best players. Got it. Has there ever been, I always ask this when I talk to folks that are doing selection, this has happened to me a number of times in my career where you're doing all these selections and you find somebody who is kind of struggling, but they have a lot of heart. I always call them the project. And I'm always like, people are like, oh, I'm not sure this is going to be great. But for some reason, I've fallen in love with this candidate and I say, oh, no, I I will work with them. We'll make it work. Have you ever been encountered that situation? Yes, sir. And there was the one one fellow we interviewed uh, more than once, and there's a couple of three of us on the board that just loved him, but he was different. He was just flat different. Yeah. And people were just worried: is he is he too different? Is he going to be you know manageable? Is he going to do what we want him to do? And we finally just selected him, and he was awesome. He was just incredible, you know. So yeah, and a lot of that, a lot of that end end thing is is gut feel, you know. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, but not very often. It's typically uh, we don't have the luxury of taking a project, even though you got two years to try to bring them around. And one thing you don't want to do is bring somebody in. If there's a pretty good chance, they might not make it because that didn't benefit anybody. Okay. Dwayne, I'm just glad you didn't identify me as one of the projects. <laughs> hey, I was, I was wondering <laughs> if that was a story about Drake. <laughs> what I'd like to do is start pivoting towards astronauts of the future, sort of, of where we're heading. And I'd like to do this with the audience. It's not, doesn't, doesn't mean that we can't go back and look at some historical things, but start to think about what's happening. And I will say as an outsider myself, who's just worked with NASA much less time than you two have, but as an outsider who's not in the community, I've noticed a couple of similarities with the evolution of of space travel in the same way as commercial uh, airlines. And to give you an example that some of our audience members may know is the origin of crew resource management or cockpit resource management, which goes back to flight 173 in 1978. It was a, a United Airlines flight that ended up crashing due to the fact that they, they ran out of gas. And they ran out of gas because the pilot and the co-pilot were in such conflict disagreeing on the source of the problem that no one was paying attention and they ran out of fuel, killing 10 people, injuring 23. After that incident, they did a full investigation and the following year in 1979 at NASA put on a report, a verbal report outlining what they'd found. And what they had found was really important historically because in 1978, commercial jet airlines were still a recent phenomenon. They had only existed since the 50s. And at that time, most of the energy in aviation was focused on keeping the planes in the sky. Like, how do you get these engines to not fail? Because that's the problem. And at this conference, basically the lead engineer and investigator got up and said, ladies and gentlemen, the plane is no longer the problem. It's these humans inside the plane that are going to be a problem and we're going to have to deal with them. So as an outsider, I'm watching NASA, SpaceX, Blue Origin all focus their much of their energy on the engineering of the rockets, of getting those things so they don't blow up, which is which is super important. But there will come a day where they actually get them pretty reliable, and we're getting closer to that every day. 
And we're now with the long duration missions, with doing construction in space, with space tourism, there's going to be a day not too long from now where it's not the machines that are the problem or the challenge or the opportunity. It's the humans inside the machines. And that will have a direct impact on how we select astronauts and what we mean by astronauts, right? Is is a is somebody that pays a million dollars to go up in Blue Origin an astronaut? Is that what we mean? Is that the same as Drew? So what do we mean by those terms? How do we select them? And what are the kinds of things that are going to be important for us to think about as, you know, the history of space flight continues? It's interesting. There's a couple of this. These are kind of peripheral kinds of things, but there's a couple of NASA policies that they put into effect. Maybe back around that time, there's a NASA policy that makes it perfectly clear that the commander of a mission is in charge. And the decision of the commander is, 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 is law as far as that mission is concerned. So that there's disagreements, things like that, read the instruction. The commander is in charge. Makes no, make no difference about that. But as you think about astronauts 5, 10, or 20 years from now, do you think the way you've been selecting them will be this, the way that we should continue to select them? Or do you think that we need to consider other things? My guess is it'll 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 evolve to some degree. You know, I'm not being right in the in the thick of things right now. I don't hear all the all the discussions and all those kinds of things. But I would guess you'd probably have to evolve to some degree. Preston, if I could add, yeah. uh, just for context, you know, since 1972, which was the last time we landed on the surface of the moon, since that time, all through the life of the space shuttle, the construction of the International Space Station, and now through the life of the International Space Station. All of our space missions have been focused on low Earth orbit. So, you know, in the range of around 250 miles above the Earth, we haven't left Earth orbit in that time. But now we're on the cusp of doing that again as part of the Artemis program and going on exploring back just not not just to the surface of the moon, but in and around the moon and eventually on to Mars. And to fast forward, these are all new forces that are going to cause us to reevaluate, but I don't know that I necessarily have the answers. These are to raise more questions. But if, you know, there's a common thread as we transition from those early programs, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, and, you know, the first footsteps on the moon to the space shuttle program, we experienced some some changes. And the way that we we uh, looked for candidates, how we selected the candidates, the, the, you know, the diversity of the candidates. And now you know, we're on the cusp of a, another new program again, where, where exploration will become, at least for a while, in parallel with the International Space Station. How should that inform how we select astronauts? I mean, that's a, that's a question for the community. I don't necessarily have answers for that. The other aspect which you alluded to is commercial space. And they, now that there are other programs out there, commercial entities that are producing astronauts and flying them, and you know, and, and then potentially even their own core of professional astronauts. There's and that it just introduces an element of of competition and defining what the, the distinction is between government astronauts and commercial astronauts and paying customers, spaceflight participants. How does that inform our selection? Back to the exploration question again. I think that there are there are two aspects of that. I think that could inform how we select astronauts in the future. First of all, we're seeing vehicles, both those that just go to low Earth orbit, but also those ones that go into lunar orbit and beyond that, that we're, we're seeing increasing automation. So the, the manual control of these vehicles is a lot less than they than it was, say, during the Apollo era. And how does that inform how we select astronauts? But also the autonomy of the astronauts as well. Now we're potentially dealing with communications delays. And you know, right now in Earth orbit, we have pretty reliable constant communication with mission control and we rely on the mission control centers all over the world to provide us with oversight and insight into a very complex vehicle the iss and the and the rockets that we launch and land on but when we go into deep space maybe that communication with mission control won't be as consistent uh, won't be as predictable there'll be delays and those types of things may drive us towards even more autonomy in our our astronaut decision-making, which is a little bit of a mindset shift from where we are right now, where we're high reliant on the insight of the mission control center. So I, you know, I offer those as variables, as, as things that those are external pressures that will cause the process to evolve, but I don't necessarily know what that looks like. But I mean, maybe Dwayne, as the yeah. selection chief emeritus, has some, some thoughts for us on that. Well, you know, when we went into the selection, the first thing you got to know is what are these people going to do? 
Yeah. And that's, I, don't, I think we don't know the answer, the full answer to that question just yet about all the planetary surface training. In, uh, in 1994, I also got the job to manage that astronaut candidate basic training program. And something we, uh, we looked at was back when we went to the moon, it took f- about 1,500 hours of field work to train those folks for what they were going to do when they went to the moon. And so, so we wouldn't have to start from scratch. We started including a planetary surface simulation as part of the uh, ASCANS geology training trip each time we did a, a trip to try to keep some basic knowledge of, you know, what are we going to be talking about once we go back to a, a planetary surface? And I ask a question that's similar to what you just asked. Uh, when we go back to the moon, is it going to be harder or easier with technology? Are we going to have more that these people have to know about to deal with with the technology or less? Is it going to be easier, you know, to train somebody or it could be harder? You know, I don't know. And then and nobody has quite figured out uh, the answer to that question yet. And the other, I was going to say a while ago, you asked about ask what is an astronaut. We kind of go by the basic definition of an astronaut that everybody agreed to is somebody who flies out of the Earth's atmosphere. You know, if you go beyond 50 miles or 80 kilometers, then you're extra atmospheric and you're an astronaut right. that includes some of the old guys who flew the uh, x-15 the bell x you know uh, the, those help those those aircraft and i guess you could count the guy who jumped out of a balloon at a hundred thousand feet which is i don't think he'd pass the psychological test but other than that, <laughs> a pretty brave guy <laughs> one of the things that drew you just mentioned and Dwayne, you've been re- referencing which i find fascinating is if you look at military history leadership comes in two rough forms. One is directive leadership. Don't do anything until I tell you to do anything. And then what happened in the old naval ships, which is leadership by negation, which is keep doing what you're going to do until there's a reason for you to stop doing it. And what's interesting is I think NASA, based on what we've been talking about, is probably going to pivot from a world in which astronauts don't do anything until they're told to, which is astronauts are given a mission and do those things until they figure out a reason not to. And that will require a different type of decision-making and a different kind of person that can kind of manage that uncertainty, be able to operate when they don't have all the answers because of the timeline, because of the communication differences. And I think that will require us to at least have conversations about what does that mean for things like astronaut selection or even flight director selection. And um, for me, I think it's a really exciting and interesting thing to consider moving forward. Yeah, you made me think of something. One of the things I've always noticed is when you make somebody the boss, they think they have to be the boss. Yep. And that's not the best boss, you know, and necessarily. Sometimes they have to be, but most of the time, you got good people that do what they're supposed to do and leave them alone. You know, Preston, as I've processed the conversation that we've been having here today and listening to Dwayne, and I, this is, uh, you know, Dwayne and I have had many conversations about this in the past, and I've listened to previous interviews that he's given on this this topic. And I, you know, I think about going into the future. I think that there are some some principles here that will endure into the future. And, you know, Dwayne has said, if we we select people with an operational mindset, operators at heart, and that are nice, good people, you know, that we largely lead, you know, we derive that from personal interaction and what, what our behavioral health professionals tell us, and that are trainable and have aptitude to learn just about anything, We'll continue to, if we use those guiding principles, we'll be able to select the right people even going into the future. And it just really all we need to do is plug in the right training. And then it just becomes a matter of training. We're still going to select the same baseline person if we use those principles. And then we can train them to do what we need them to do. Be more autonomous, be less autonomous, be, you know, be more creative thinker, be a less creative thinker, whatever it is that we need them to do. Be a geologist, be a medical doctor, be a pilot. I think that if we continue using these basic principles that Dwayne laid down for us over the course of about four decades, they'll continue to service well into the future. Well put, yeah. Dwayne, I think we're getting ready to close up, and I wanted to give you some last words. First, I just want to say happy birthday for tomorrow. (laughs) I made it another year. I know, right? Thank you for (laughs) joining us. You know, let's say that tomorrow I've decided that I'm going to create a private astronaut school, and I call you up and I say, hey, what are, and I know you've, you've already commented that there's not really easy answers to this, and it's really looking for nice people. But I'm wondering, what advice might you give me? Number one, start with the requirements of the job. And number two, start talking to the people who have done the job. 
because that's the people who are going to know exactly what you need to be looking for. We, that's one of the, the pluses we have is the members of the astronaut selection board are primarily senior astronauts with flight experience. So who would know the job any better than they would? Yeah. When you go to a selection process, you start evaluating people's backgrounds for the job. So that that would be the key things I would do is to make sure you know what the job is and, and then get people who've done it to help you figure out the right way to pick people for it. So if I'm you in 1978 and there isn't anyone, they're all gone and the documents are gone. And I say, hey, um, what are your what are your starting principles, given that you can't reference anyone? Yeah, well, we, we the, what we started with was including we, we were knowing kind of what kind of people would be applying and what kind of people would be selecting. Pilots were the pilots. So we had pilots on the selection board. John Young, primarily John Young was on just about every board that I was part of. Great human being, just loved him. But we had astronomer, we had uh, we had a geologist, we had lots of engineers, we had a medical doctor. You know, we had all those disciplines covered uh, at the time in that first selection board. We we thought we we knew enough to be able to evaluate the applications that we would get. Okay. An interesting note. Oh yeah, I probably shouldn't. I won't even bring that up. Never mind. Oh, it's too late. The audience now will go crazy. <laughs> you got to make something up. We were very serious about including everyone in that selection, women and minority candidates. And But what was interesting back then is the state of the uh, rules and regulations was you couldn't ask. You couldn't ask people what they were, you know, in terms of you could kind of tell the the, the, the females because the old government ac- application had a box you check, Mr., Miss. Mrs., you know, and so you can kind of tell from that. But in terms of the minority groups, there was no things you checked or, or, or had to ask, so we couldn't ask, but we had to report it. Interesting. Yeah, it's a little bit difficult. So you couldn't ask, but you had to report it. Right. I love stuff like that. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, with that, uh, do either one of you have any closing comments before we begin to wrap this up? I'm so grateful that you've taken the time to come on. I've been fascinated by this conversation, but I want to make sure you had had any closing comments, you had time to say them. The only thing I would say is just being, having the opportunity to be some small part of mankind's greatest adventure was just a thing I never dreamed I'd ever have. And getting to do the astronaut selection process, which was very, very interesting, working with guys like Drew and others best job a person could want besides getting to fly in space. Well, I personally, as a representative of the citizens of the United States of America, are very grateful you did it, sir. So thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, Preston, I've been through the full life cycle of an astronaut now, having flown in space and recovered from space and back here on the ground working again. But I think most of my colleagues that have participated in the selection process would tell you, and I've I've participated in two selections now, and on the ground outside of flying and training and flying for space, one of the greatest honors in my career was to participate in the selection process and learn from people like Dwayne along the way. He is the, the Yoda of selection processes here. And even though he's retired from NASA now, we still pull him in as for wisdom as the selection chief emeritus and it's been a great honor in my life to participate in this process to be here at nasa to call Dwayne a friend and to finally connect preston with Dwayne ross because immediately when we met preston years ago i was like oh one day i need to get the two of you to have a conversation because i know that it's a it's an interest that we all share and it's been a lot of fun to do this podcast with you Well, I'm grateful to both of you, and I'm grateful to all the listeners who stuck with us. And thanks again for coming to the TeamCast. You're welcome. Thank you again for listening to our TeamCast. For more information about the Mission Critical Team Institute, please go to www.missioncti.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you are a Mission Critical Team that wants more information on our courses, please reach out to our Director of Operations, Janice Jackson, at Janice at MissionCTI.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-E at MissionCTI.com. And once again, thank you, Janice, and thank you to Shelby Row Productions for helping us produce the TeamCast. Have a great day.